listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, we were sort of talking about, the first question is about cleaning, because I love cleaning. It's like my favorite thing to do every week. Um, we, my favorite thing to do when I clean, it happens, I, I hate cleaning the shower though, because like you already clean, you're, you're washing your body, there's soap involved, do you have to clean the shower? My mom is very much yes, and I'm kind of like apathetic about the shower. But the doors get disgusting after a while, they get all like filmy or whatever, so Joey bought me an attachment for his drill, like his power drill, it's like a scrubby thing. So he'll take the doors off like once every five years and put them in the driveway and you can't see anything through them because it's been five years since I cleaned them. Um, the shower is like the place of ultimate cleaning shame in my house, which is why it's gross. Um, and I'll put like CLR on it and put a mask on and then and they look perfect. So if you ever want to get your shower doors clean, buy an attachment for your power drill. Joey was super proud of himself when he found it. He's like, check out this thing I found on the internet. And that was weird. Um, so the title of my story, hard left turn here, is um, nothing to see here. Um, it's an expression that you can use to mean several different things. The obvious use is there's nothing to see here, which is why you don't see anything here. Um, the sarcastic use is, like, there is absolutely something to see here, but I would prefer you just move along and pretend you didn't see anything. Um, the low self-esteem use is, like, there's nothing to see here because I'm lousy and I contribute nothing to anything, so there's nothing to see here. And then there's also, like, the allegorical, figurative, churchy use, which is, like, he must increase and I must decrease. So... I'm going to tell you a story today, and my goal is that when I'm done, you will agree with me that the title that I intentionally selected for my story is wrong. So, <laughs> nine years ago, I was up here doing a faith story, and I was quaking in my boots because, like, I got a D in speech in college because I was too nervous to read the full syllabus, and I missed a page on the final project, and Whatever, I was terrible at speech because I decided I was. So I figured I'm just gonna stay true to my brand and continue not public speaking. Um, often, like, I'm happy to sing in front of a thousand people, whatever, no concern. But when it comes to like speaking words that I wrote, very scary, the panicked speaker becomes awkward really fast for everyone. Uh, my brother, this is my favorite story about my brother. He was giving his testimony once and he was talking in front of a bunch of people, talking, talking, talking. Suddenly he forgets where he is, he freezes. And then he's like, stage fright, I'm done. And then just like runs off the stage. <laughs> so it's a hereditary condition, I think, is the point. So I have decided recently within the last couple of years, I didn't die nine years ago when I gave my faith story, I'm still here. Um, so I decided it's time for me to like grow up and do something new to challenge myself once a month. So I have volunteered to read scripture on Sundays. That goes better sometimes than others. A couple years ago, I read the wrong passage in the wrong chapter, and Jeff had to come up and stop me. Um, <laughs> 
I didn't die then either. So um, this summer I was like, I'm going to volunteer to give my faith story. And then I was like, why did I do this? Um, so this is kind of a remix from 2013 with like some new stuff thrown in. So if you heard me in 2013 and you want to just leave, now's your chance. Um, but I grew up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and I chose to follow Jesus at the age of five and I believe that I meant it and that I knew what I was doing even though I was five. Um, but I, I do have to tell you the story because it's amazing. I was playing dolls in the basement by myself behind the furnace like you do. And I saw the pilot light on under the furnace and I was like, we're going to die. The house is on fire. It's going to blow up. And I'm going straight to hell because of what I learned in Sunday school, and I clearly haven't done anything about it. So I stopped playing with my dolls. I confessed my sins, invited Jesus into my heart, and I asked him to forgive me, and then I went straight upstairs and was like, Mom, I became a Christian. Also, we're all going to die because the house is going to blow up. <laughs> and she was like, okay. Um, so the testimony is the definition of fire insurance. Like, I thought we were going to die. Um, and even though it's bonkers, I believe that's when God saved me because I understood why I needed to be saved because of my sin, why I couldn't make it to heaven on my own, and that I needed to ask Jesus to forgive me, and that this would lead me to a life of repentance and submission to the gospel. It does not mean that I didn't always wish I had a cooler testimony or like something that was more socially acceptable because it's just when you have to get baptized and you're like, well, this is my story. I was playing on the pilot light. It's, it's just, you know, it's not really like a one that grips you to want to change your life. God didn't have to do a whole lot except have me notice the pilot light. And then I turned right around from my evil five-year-old ways. Growing up on Sunday afternoons, we would lay on the floor in the living room and listen to KNWS, which was the Christian radio station in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. They had Adventures in Odyssey on at 5 o'clock, but at 4.30 they played Unshackled. Has anyone ever heard Unshackled? Exactly. It's, drum it's dramatized testimonies and stories from Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago, and they are awesome. They are extremely scandalous testimonies if you're a homeschool farm kid from Iowa. And I was like, these are dope. And not just like the kind that means cool, like there was often drug references, murder, thievery, gang activity. I would lay on the floor and be like, man, I wish that I had an amazing story of redemption like these formerly terrible people because the Lord has changed their life and now everyone knows it and is like, I want that for my life. So which page am I on? Got it. So <laughs> I didn't want to actually do any of the terrible stuff that led to these amazing stories of redemption um, because I like the right kind of danger and those were all the wrong kind of danger. But I still was like, this is better than what I've got. I know I'm like seven or 10 by this point, but still, that's better. I would tell my mom this and then she would say that I should be thankful for God's work in my life. He had protected me from a lot of sin and evil things and danger in that way, but God's work in my life was not less of a miracle, and I would never buy it. <laughs> I wanted there to be something cool or terrible that happened to me that would draw people to Jesus, but I felt like I had nothing. We had 
chore charts on the refrigerator, and every day there was a square marked quiet time. Mine was more often than not not marked it off because I was and still am not the greatest at reading my Bible on a consistent basis. But sometimes I would be like, I need to make up for like two months of not reading my Bible, so that's like 60 chapters. I got to go upstairs. So <laughs> I would go upstairs and I would grab my Bible, the Adventure Bible, and I would start reading. My favorite books were always Old Testament narrative because if any part of the Bible is like an unshackled episode, it is Old Testament narrative. Those guys are crazy. So I'm going to read to you one of my dog-eared chapters from 1 Kings. Characters here are King Ahab, Jezebel, she is the worst, um, Elijah, the ghosts of all of the prophets of Baal that Elijah had just sent to their deaths, um, God, obviously. And then there's like a surprise appearance from Elisha at the end. Um, I always liked Elijah because he is super dramatic and also very pouty. So, are you guys ready for this? When Ahab told Queen Jezebel what Elijah had done, that he had slaughtered the prophets of Baal, she sent this message to Elijah. You killed my prophets and now I swear by the gods I'm going to kill you by this time tomorrow night. So Elijah fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a city in Judah, and left his servant there. Then he went alone into the wilderness, traveling all day, and sat down under a broom bush and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, he told the Lord. Take away my life. I've got to die sometime, and it might as well be now. So he lay down and slept beneath the broom bush, but as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him to get up and eat. He looked around and saw some bread baking on hot stones in a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for there's a long journey ahead of you. So he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel for 40 days and 40 nights, which is a long time on bread and whatever, um, to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, where he lived in a cave. The Lord said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have worked very hard for the Lord God of heavens, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, killed your prophets. Now I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord said. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a scarf and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, why are you here, Elijah? He replied again, I've been working very hard for the Lord God of the armies of heaven, but the people have broken their covenant and torn down your altars. They've killed all your prophets except for me, and now they're trying to kill me too. So the Lord said to him, go back to where you came from, and you will, I'm going to skip part of this because it's like super long. Anyways, Elijah goes, he finds Elisha, who's plowing in a field with 11 other teams ahead of him. At the end, he was at the end of the line with the last team. Elijah went over to him, threw his coat across his shoulders, and walked away. Weird. Elisha left the oxen standing there and ran after Elijah and said, first let me go and say goodbye to my mother and father, then I'll go with you. Also a weird response. Elijah replied, go on back. Why all the excitement? 
Then Elisha returned to his oxen, killed them, used the wood from the plow to build a fire and roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the other plowmen, and they all had a great feast. Then he went with Elijah as his assistant. So I would read this story, and others like it, and my takeaways were always, Jezebel is the worst. Elijah saw a lot of false prophets die. He's kind of whiny. God did some very dramatic, sort of mysterious stuff outside the cave. And then our boy Elisha changed his entire life based upon a fairly weird nonverbal signal from Elijah. So I would read that, and I would totally miss the most important part because I was looking for the wrong thing. When God came to speak to Elijah in Mount Horeb, there was a windstorm that was so strong that the rocks broke free, but God wasn't in that. There was an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And the fire that came next, God was not in that either. Not this time. He had been in all of those things in other Old Testament stories. God had literally spoken out of a burning bush like a couple chapters to the left. But in this story, the way that, the, that God speaks is through a gentle whisper. His work is not always dramatic, and it's not always showy, and it's not always all-consuming like a fire. His work in my life has often, not always, been the still small voice. When I was growing up, I would read this passage and others like it in the Old Testament and New Testament, look for parallels in my life, and then see nothing. Being a good kid who thought she had a pretty unexceptional story of redemption set me up for about two decades of salvation anxiety. Was I saved? Did I do it right? Did it count? I knew that I thought all the right things. I knew that I believed all the right things, but like, all God had to save me from was little sin? So was my name actually in the Lamb's book of life? Ultimately, I was not yet able to comprehend that there are no little sins, even though some are more socially acceptable than others. And I'm not trying to get into like a topical study on all sins being equal, because I have to be done with this by the time Joey's done, and <laughs> I don't think we have time. Um, but it's important to recognize that as I grew up, there was a gap in my understanding of what it meant to be more like Christ. In Matthew 16, Jesus says to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your own life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul? Up until I was about 25, being a follower of Jesus did not require much from me. I was comfortable following the rules, don't murder, check, don't cover your neighbor's donkey, they don't have one, <laughs> don't take the Lord's name in vain, I can do that. And honestly, following Jesus was comfortable for me. I wanted to be with believers, I wanted to go to campus ministry events, I wanted to go to Bible study, and I wanted to lead worship and be in church on Sunday. I went to a Christian high school, and in my discipleship class, we had to memorize a verse every week. And one of the weeks I chose James 1, 2 through 4, it was kind of like, I knew this from Awana, so I can get away with this being really easy, and I can get an A, and I don't have to work very hard. Um, it would bounce around in my head regularly, and I still, I still really love it. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come to your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be mature 
and complete, lacking nothing. In 2005, Joey and I got married, which was a super good decision for both of us. Ever since in, I was in elementary school, and this is the hand to God truth, I wanted to marry a pastor, but not just any old pastor guy. I wanted to marry a pastor who had graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary. <laughs> I stand before you today as living proof that some dreams do come true. <laughs> we moved to Dallas after we'd been married for about a year and a half, and once we were settled in and we'd found a church community to be part of, um, the reality that in like four years I was going to be a pastor's wife, because that's what happens to people who marry pastors, um, hit me and I was like, oh, I have nothing to offer. Um, the only pastor's wives that I knew of had been very excellent. And I had like no chance of pulling off their spiritual growth level, ministry impact, or general excellence of character as like a Barb Benton or a Hope Cheshire, which you guys don't know because they were my pastor's wives growing up. Um, they didn't have a lamb testimony. So I felt a little bad for God because he hadn't had a chance to do anything amazing in my life. And he hadn't had much to work with in the way of depravity. So I kind of felt like my faith story was like, nothing to see here um, situation. And I asked God to draw me closer. I would pray for patience, which I have heard works. Like if you pray for patience, God's going to like do something that's going to make you have to be patient. But it didn't really work. Um, and every time I would do stuff like this, I'd be like, this will work. Nothing happened. So I was confident in my, faith, my salvation, even though I felt like there was no fireworks to draw anyone in. And then, one afternoon in April 2009, I took a pregnancy test. This was by far not the first pregnancy test I'd ever taken. But it was the first one to ever have two lines on it. And for those of you who have never taken one, that means it's positive. So we had been trying to have a baby for about six months at that point, and my doctor was rather patronizing when she was like, don't worry about it. There's nothing wrong with you. You're young. It's not been that long. Just keep, keep working on it. So I was irritated because the reason I had scheduled the appointment was because I was like, I think something is wrong with me. But here I was with a positive pregnancy test, finally. So that time I was pregnant for about a month, when we went in for another ultrasound and discovered there was no cardiac activity and I got some concerning blood work results. So we were devastated. Um, and I'm sure that many of you in this room have experienced that same feeling at some point in your lives, whether it is over a miscarriage or like having a child that is you know, going through something difficult. It's a strange like feeling of you know, just like emptiness. So to make matters weirder, my doctor was like, I think we're going to have inpatient surgery on Sunday morning, which is in three days. Um, so this was my first miscarriage, so nothing about this struck me as unusual. She was like, we would do it today, but it's too late in the day to get an OR, and I think you'll be okay till Sunday. Just go home and don't move. And if you feel weird, come to the ER. And I was like, also, that seems aggressive, but okay, this must just be what happens. Um, she said, go to get some more lab work done the next day, and then whatever, we'll talk on Saturday. Um, so I went home and absolutely did the opposite of what she asked me to do. I cleaned my house, and I put a bunch of food in the freezer because I was like, this seems weird. Maybe I won't feel good when this is over. Um, also, I forgot to mention, that was our fourth wedding anniversary, so we no longer schedule doctor's appointments on birthdays or anniversaries, just in case we, like, mess them up. 
So we did go out for anniversary, like you do, and it was sad, and it was, you know, we were quiet, but we were at least together, so at least there was that. Um, so Sunday morning at 5.30, we pulled up to Dem Methodist Dallas, and Joey dropped me off at labor and delivery, which was where I was supposed to go, and also rude. Um, so an hour and a half, I was, I was changed, I was in a hospital gown, and I was like, am I spending the night here? And everyone was like, you are. I was like, that also seems weird, but okay. So five or six hours later, I woke up, and my throat was dry, and I felt like that was weird because they weren't working on my throat, and I couldn't talk, and I was like, it's my, I am in a lot of pain. This is not what they said was going to happen to me, like at all. So I was very confused. What did they do? So when they gave me the rundown in pre-op, it had been very different from this. So the disorienting news just kept coming. I was finally back up with Joey, and the doctor came in to tell us that, surprise, they found way more problems than she'd originally expected, and they'd had to perform a laparotomy on me. And I was like, that's why I'm in so much pain. You cut a six-inch line in me. So the good news, she said, is that now all of my organs were in the correct spot, but the bad news was, she's like, I have no idea how you ever got pregnant. It shouldn't have happened. And it isn't going to ever happen again. So, sorry about ya. Um, actually, what she said was, bummer, guys. And I was like, I hate you now. I didn't like you before, but now I really hate you. I got a new doctor after that. So this was the, very, the beginning of a long, dark, lonely place for me. We, and especially me, had entered the season that James had been talking about when I memorized the words, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. But do you want to know something? Even though I had been waiting for this, I didn't necessarily want it to be this, but something testing my whole life, um, I was definitely not considering these troubles as an opportunity for great joy. Not at all. Zero percent. And I don't think there's anything surprising about my response to my faith being tested, even though it's what I'd always wanted so that I could kind of prove that my faith was real. I was spitting nails mad at God. The joy that James wanted for me was non-existent. I lashed out at Joey, at my family, at my friends. When I would pray, it was always one of David's angry psalms where he like rips God a new one. Um, I would lock myself in the bathroom for hours or we'd be on our way to something and I would shut down and be physically present but not able to speak. And that was not fun for Joey at all. Um, so I, and then I would just rage at God for making me broken. I stayed this way for several months because neither spiritual growth nor sanctification happens overnight. It would be awesome if it did, but it hasn't been my experience that it is. So... God was patient with me, and so was Joey, <laughs> and he was faithful to continue speaking to me in the sound of a gentle whisper, because that was what I needed. Again, his work in my life has always been in the form of him speaking to me through a gentle whisper. It's never been big, it's never been flashy, and it will never make the front page, but it is powerful in its essential simplicity, and it is mighty to save. I began to notice that every time David rages against God in these imprecatory psalms, he ultimately ends them in submission to God. I hadn't been reading them to the end. <laughs> Missing the point again. So, like we sang so much at Easter, though the sun had ceased its shining, though the war appeared as lost, Christ has triumphed over evil. 
it was finished on that cross. My faith was being tested, but I realized that I was continuing to choose Jesus. My endurance was finally being given a chance to grow so that eventually, as I continued moving towards Christ, it will become fully developed and I can be mature, mature and complete, lacking in nothing. But I'm still so far from finding myself mature and complete. I'll just quickly summarize the rest of our journey to have a child. We did two rounds of IVF in Dallas, the second of which was successful, and that's where Anna came from. Woohoo! <laughs> she is evidence of the goodness of God in our lives, and she is fruit of these troubles that, God, that James talks about, and she is our great joy. I need to point out, and it, this is hard for me to reconcile even now, that even if God had not given her to us, he would still be good. And I don't like that. But it's true. So um, in 2015, here in Indianapolis, we did two more rounds of IVF. Um, our second round was successful, but I lost that baby um, in the second trimester. And it became necessary at that point for us to stop trying. So in 2016, we had to accept that God's plan for us was to be a family of three and just have cats. We got cats, don't we miss? Now, before any of you can come up to me after this and tell me about all the other ways that people can build families, I definitely know about them. Um, <laughs> but for us, coming from a place of weariness after doing four rounds of IVF, which is not for the faint of heart, um, and all of the health problems that we were just like, oh, there's a new one that we keep finding out that I have, um, we just had to accept that this was a final no from God. Sometimes when we ask God to do something and he says no instead of yes, he still answered the prayer. We just don't like it. Um, so we decided to take our emotional energy away from trying to have our own children and use it to build into the lives of the children that are already here around us. Um, nieces and nephews, the, the friends of our, I mean, the kids of our friends, not our friends of our kids. That would be, well, also the, friend of, the friends of our kid. Um, neighbors, neighbor kids, um, Every child needs seven, I'm not sure if that's the number exactly, but seven or so safe adults that are not in their family. And that can be us. It is us. We take that role super seriously, but not so super seriously that we don't embarrass them as often as possible. So like yesterday, it was Anna's friend's birthday, and she's our neighbor, so I drove three houses down. I saw them out playing, and I was like, it'll be weirder if I drive. So I drove over there, and I jumped out of my car and I gave her a hug and then I got back in my car and drove away. So, you know, she'll never forget that. <laughs> so we need to land this plane because I think Joey's going to be done soon and then everyone's going to want to go have lunch. So where does this leave me and God's work in my life? Am I currently mature and complete, lacking in nothing? No, I'm not. Not yet. Every morning I get up and I look in the mirror because that is how sinks work. If you want to brush your teeth, you have to look in the mirror, unless your house is cool and doesn't have one. In my case, what I see back in the mirror reminds me that I have been given the opportunity to live inside of a body that reminds me that our world is broken. And that's actually not depressing. A broken body and a broken world is an, often an uncomfortable reminder to us and that sometimes God's good plan for our life contains suffering. For me, it's important that I pray for myself and for others not to get out of suffering, but to get through it in a way that brings God glory, because it's going to happen to all of us. 
A good girl with a lame testimony, me, needs incentive to look forward to heaven where, and I have to drop a Tolkien quote in here because I'm married to Joey, everything sad is going to come untrue and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. I told you at the beginning of my story that I had intentionally picked a title that is wrong, nothing to see here. And I did that to emphasize that what we see in our stories of God working in our lives depends on our perspectives. I've seen that my perspective was skewed because I was looking for something flashy, and I missed out on noticing years of God's faithfulness to me while I was like rubbernecking out there for better stories. Whether God's work in your life is loud or quiet, the most important thing to remember is that it's God's work, not ours. And that is the end of my story. Oh, questions! I'm an open book. <laughs> well, I'll start with one. Okay. So Joey said that when you learned the Dallas, you used the opportunity to work on your Spanish, and he particularly enjoyed driving by La Fitness Center. Oh my gosh, yes! That stupid La Fitness! Gets me every time. It was in Dallas that I was like, hey, coworkers, is anyone members at La Fitness? And they're like, no. Do you mean LA Fitness? I'm like, shut up, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Also, it should have been clear to me that fitness is not a foreign word. It's for sure ours. Yeah. I miss the point all the time. Yes? Do you ever consider stand-up? <laughs> I have not. <laughs> that would probably get Joey fired. <laughs> I like spreadsheets too much to do that. Oh, yes. Hi, Mandy. The problem is I never know what happens until like two years later. And then I'm like, oh, dude. Um, wait, wait, I mean, I just kind of told, uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. thinking, thinking, thinking. I'm terrible at knowing. That's another part of my problem. Because I'm always just like, oh, I guess that was what God was talking to me and I didn't notice it until, I don't know. <sighs> Gosh. You're going to have to edit all of this out because it's just a lot of ums, like from speech class. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's like, why are you putting your coat on me, dude? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I always was like, how, who, who was the one that noticed that that's where the voice was? Because it doesn't say, also, God was in the quiet. But it does, like, the voice talks and nothing else talks. I would have missed it if I was Elijah. So it's a good thing I wasn't. That's a great, I don't know how we knew. I think we just knew because I was like, I can't do this anymore. It's not worth it. I would rather be a person who's thinking about something other than what time of day is it? Do I need to give a shot now or does it have to be refrigerated? Yeah. Um, I think we just both felt 
it's time to be done. And when we talked about it, we were in agreement. I think that's how we n knew. Maybe that's how, maybe that's, that's possible. Yeah, I think you guys are so smart. You should all be my life coaches. <laughs> Talking? Uh, your singing. Oh, singing! Um, I never have had voice lessons. It's all an accident. So yeah, um, my my family is very musical. My mom tried to teach me piano lessons. She tried to teach me how to read music. It was a colossal failure. The only thing that happened was she got frustrated with me and was like, "You're faking it, aren't you? You're doing this by ear. You're not supposed to. You're supposed to be reading it." Never worked. So. Um, that's why I can sing stuff is because I can, I, I don't know, I can sing along with songs I've never heard before. Um, it's just, I have, my, my family is musical and everyone sings and mom used to make us do like special music for church together. Um, so, but I've just always loved it. It's my favorite way to, I like to connect with God through the corporateness of everyone singing the same words that we may not want to say but we are I think it's kind of an act of humbling yourself to sing a song that is more submissive than you are with everyone together and then that's kind of like it's a I think it's a special way that the body of Christ connects and I I wish we would sing more always because I think it's don't tell Joey this but I think it's more important than the preaching sometimes <laughs> which I've told him all the time actually he knows <laughs> I think the singing is just as important as his preaching <laughs> yes there's two people that Julian Yasin I don't actually Yeah, I, I don't like listening to music because I would rather be doing it, which is weird. So, yeah, similar. Yes, and did you have a hand up? <laughs> I called my dad after that sermon and I was like, hey, I know you like to print off emails. It's something I've been talking with you about for decades. The emails are supposed to stay in the, in the E, not the printer. So they have filing cabinets full of printed emails. It's amazing. Do you have that still? And dad's like, no, I don't have it anymore. So he doesn't have it. I know, I was like, you have a whole church of disappointed people with you now. <laughs> so it doesn't, it doesn't exist. He was like, I wish I'd saved that. And I was like, you save everything else. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've, yeah. Um, when, when Joey started, it was obvious that Joey and I were going to start dating. We dated for like an unwise amount of time before we got engaged for a very also short amount of time. There was less than a year between like the starting of the dating and the marrying, like 10 months. I can't recommend it for everyone. Um, but it's worked for us. So my dad, um, I had been 
in the process of getting married to someone else before Joey, and my dad was like, you don't like, he's, you, you aren't happy, you should break up with him. And I was like, I can do that? Sweet. So I did. <laughs> That's not supposed to be the response, right? <laughs> so I did, and then my dad was like, oh, Joey's in the ether. I'm gonna make a very long list of questions so that we can maybe avoid this person's situation over here. And Joey was like, I'd love to answer all these questions for you. So he did. It was a long list, like a long pages list by the time he typed out his answers and sent them back to my father in a Word document. <laughs> and um, dad was like, the fact that he was willing to do these questions is a good sign. Because the other boy was like, you can't tell me what to do. So um, he was the worst. And Joey is the best. So the list does not exist, but I wish it did. I'm sure his answers were hilarious. It doesn't because that's like four computers ago. And Joey is also a technological hoarder. But when we m moved from Dallas, I was like, we haven't used this computer in like three years. Can we just like break it with a hammer and then throw it away? So it didn't survive the move. From the sabbatical? I think, I think sabbaticals are interesting because what they taught me is that we are not supposed to do this life by ourselves. It's lame to be by yourself. Like, it sounds better than it actually winds up being. Three months is a long time to not have a community. Um, when we got home, we were like, okay, yay, we, like, we missed this. We missed church, we missed worshiping with people. We tried to find a church to go to over there, but they were just so far away and we didn't have a car that we just gave up because I almost died one day because I was like, it's 100 degrees and this is six miles away. And um, I didn't almost die, that was dramatic. I was very sweaty and disgruntled. So after that, Joey's like, I guess we'll just watch Faith Church. So we did, and, and it made us realize that the best parts of life, like rest is important, but the best parts of life and the best parts of being a follower of Jesus is doing it in a group and doing, doing it together with the same people because um, community is really important. Also, rest is important, but you can overdo rest. And sometimes it's nice to know that you have to do something. Like, a, like I made a cleaning list for us, and I made everyone clean that apartment. I was like, we have to do something. We have to have a goal. And so anyway, we clean that apartment so good every week. So um, I also, another thing that I one of my reflections was, we, Joey, Anna, and I didn't get sick of being with each other after the three months, which I think is special. And so we have not plumbed the depths of the amount of time we're willing to spend with each other before we get sick of each other. So that was also lovely. <laughs> yes, Jenny? Isn't that so weird? Okay, so here, yeah. 
no one has the, the Jenny's question was, how, why did you want to marry a pastor, like a Dallas seminary, that's very specific, and she's not wrong. The church that I grew up in, my parents still attend there. It's, they've been going there for probably 35 years. My brother goes there with his kids. When we go back, I'm like, hey, Mrs. Davenport, I know you have a name, but I'm not going to use it. Um, so all of their pastors have always been hired from Dallas Seminary. It, I was like, if there was another one that was okay, they would have hired from there, right? So clearly, like, this is the one that you do. And I have since come to realize that, like, other pastors can be fine from other places. <laughs> I think if Joey had gone to, when we first got married, he was enrolled in a different seminary. And I was like, hey, I have a suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we went down to Dallas and he toured it. He did the campus tour and he's like, I think I can go to school here. And I was like, jackpot. <laughs> so um, it was originally not his plan, but I was not subtle, and it became his plan. So that's the, that's, that's, that's the deal. It was me being obnoxious is what it was. <laughs> I told him, I can't respect the degree that you get from this other seminary. I said those words, and he was like, oh, that's interesting. I'll consider uh, changing my school. We were already married, so it was clearly like it was, we were going to be married. I just would be more happy with him if he went <laughs> Exactly. I want to be able to respect you, Joey, and I need you to go to a different seminary. <sighs> yep. Yep. Our life is like one sermon illustration after another. It's just convenient for him. So does he get your approval before he shares things? Occasionally. Um, I do actually sometimes say nope, or he'll come home and I'll be like, mm, I got too many texts about that during the sermon. You're fired. And then he'd be like, yeah, that one was impromptu. I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to use that. Um, or he'll, or he'll, I'll, I'll find out about them, like if I'm greeting people, and first hour people trickle down, and they're like, so apparently you know this one thing. And I'd be like, no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> But obviously, he's using me as a sermon illustration this week. So sometimes I know and sometimes I don't. If he thinks I'm going to say no, he'll ask. And I'll usually be like, that's fine. There's a few that I've been like, nope, you're not using that. So, yes? It is. That's an interesting question. Um, my mom is a pastor's kid, and I saw what, I, I just knew the expectations for my grandmother. Um, they were always pastoring small Baptist churches in, in rural Iowa. And some of the things that my mom would say that were rules, unspoken rules for my grandma going up, growing up were you, you can't have friends because if you're playing favorites with one lady in the church, the other ladies will get upset. And I was like, that is not going to be me. Um, and just like expectations, uh, I can't play the piano. So that's clearly an out. Um, <laughs> we tried that. Um, so I, I, there was kind of in the, the back of my mind that sometimes 
the expectations are unspoken but rigid, and I didn't want that to be my experience. I've never been great at just like blending in. So when we came here, one of the things that I was encouraged about in the interview process was I could see that the, the wives of the pastors were not expected to play the piano and do children's ministry. I am a terrible children's ministry teacher. Like, no one wants that. That's why I do Kid Check, because I don't have to teach any children. Um, so I was thankful that um, Joanne Beachy, she had a full-time job. I was like, cool, she can do that stuff. Um, Linda had her own things that she was working on, and I could see that Faith Church is more comfortable than I think a lot of churches at letting the pastor's wives do their thing. Also, Joey was like, I'm just not gonna let people have, like, pigeonhole you. And I appreciate that too, because I don't like being pigeonholed either. So he has always been very supportive of, if that's your ministry passion, then you, you should do that, you should pursue that. So he, there was never an expectation from him that I would be at all the student ministry events, because I was like, Anna needs to sleep, and I think it's more important for her that she knows that she is an important human that is not just like adjacent to our ministry lives. Um, for me, the most important ministry I had when she was little was making sure that she was taken care of and also knew that she was important in our family, not just like a tag along that we like, we got the kids, we gotta bring them places. Um, so, I have been thankful at Faith Church that I, I get to lead worship. That's obviously something that I really am passionate about. And they let me do Kid Check, which is super fun because I can say hi to everybody and then not have to screw up any lessons. <laughs> is that the answer to your question? Okay. I actually don't really dislike anything about it. So that was your, the B part of your question. Yeah. I'm not great at wearing skirts, and Faith Church doesn't make me wear skirts, which is great. That's another thing I wouldn't have liked if I had to wear them. I have some. I just don't like to wear them all the time. Thank you very much.